Well, I'd like to invite you as the offering is being collected to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm number 3. Psalm 3, as we're making our way through this brief series uh, uh, through the Psalms, uh, culminating in Psalm number 8, where all things are put under the feet of Christ Jesus. Uh, Today we'll consider both Psalms 3 and 4, since as we'll see, they have some things in common. And so for the, uh, for the reading of God's law, I'd like to begin reading in, in Psalm 3 all the way through the end of Psalm 4. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And then Psalm 4. Answer me when I call. O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth. Grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, as we've seen in Psalms 1 and 2, the book of Psalms starts on a pretty triumphal note. We saw the blessedness of the righteous man and of all who take refuge in him. We saw the psalm speak of the absolute certainty of the victorious reign of the King of kings and Lord of lords, who despite all the ragings of the nations and plottings of the people, will nevertheless dash his enemies to pieces like a potter's vessel. And this is the hope, the promise that we are given at the beginning of the Psalms as we cling to that hope as we make our earthly journey throughout this life. But as we see in Psalms 3 and 4 today, we have a stark reminder that the way of the righteous is hard and beset with many dangers and foes. And perhaps no other Old Testament saint exemplified this more than King David. Think about David as he was anointed as a young man and very shortly afterwards was 
uh, uh, hunted down by his own king, King Saul. And throughout his life, there was constant dangers. There was constant enemies. There were uh, people outside, the, the enemies without, and the enemies within. Even members of his own household rising up against him. Indeed, David's sufferings were great. But David's sufferings were merely a type and shadow pointing forward to the sufferings of his greater son, the son of David, Jesus Christ, and his sufferings that he accomplished for us and for our salvation. And so as we begin to focus upon these sufferings of the king, we look at Psalm 3 and 4, and we see that these psalms begin a new section in the Psalter, where we uh, see the David crying out to the Lord in time of his distress. These psalms are called Psalms of Lament, where he prays to God uh, for deliverance from all his troubles. We see this in Psalms 3 all the way up to Psalm 7, and then picking up again in Psalm 9, uh, uh, and continuing uh, throughout the book, uh, the first book of the Psalter, we see a lot of psalms of lament. And this should teach us something. That when we go through trials in life, that when we are in distress, that when we're worried or concerned or uh, it, whatever is besetting us, that God wants us to cry out to him. And he has given us these psalms as examples as sample prayers that we can cry out to him during this time. He wants us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. But Psalms 3 and 4 have more in common than just uh, being both psalms of lament and following each other in order. But we also see in the psalms, perhaps you noticed this as I read them, that both of them focus upon something that typically eludes us in times of distress, And yes, I'm talking about that thing called sleep. Did you notice there in Psalm 3, verse 5, where he says, I lay down and slept, I awoke, for you sustained me. And then at the very end of Psalm 4, he says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone make me dwell in safety. And so these two psalms have uh, historically been, been considered morning and evening psalms. Psalm 3 being a psalm that you can pray in the morning, because guess what? You woke up, God's given you another day. And then as your bed hits the pillow at night, you could pray Psalm 4, knowing that you will both lie down and sleep in peace because the Lord will watch over you. Elsewhere we read in the Psalms, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives sleep, gives sleep, or sorry, gives to his beloved sleep. And perhaps if you had a restless night last night, these Psalms would be particularly fitting for you. One other thing to, uh, to mention before we get into the Psalms themselves, and that is the superscriptions that we find at the beginning of each. You may notice in your Bibles that there uh, are titles which the English translators provide there for you, but then below that title are superscriptions. The one in Psalm 3 says, A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom, and the one in Psalm 4 to the choir master with stringed instruments, A Psalm of David. These superscriptions are uh, part of the Hebrew text that has been handed down to us today, although they are most likely not part of the original composition of the Psalms. They were added later, although they are still nonetheless very ancient. And these superscriptions, which include details about authorship or perhaps a historical setting or even musical directions, 
They provide, they help shed light on the way in which the ancient Israelites viewed these psalms, and thus they're useful to us as we seek to understand them in our present age. And in particular, the historical setting that we find for Psalm 3, that is, Absalom's rebellion against his father, provides a very interesting lens from which to view this psalm. And so let's look at that psalm, beginning in 3, where David cries out to the Lord, complaining to him about how many are his foes. You notice that word many appears there three times. In stark contrast to uh, Psalm 2, where we see God enthroned in the heavens, laughing at the nations assembled against him and his anointed, we see David, from the earthly perspective, all alone and surrounded by these nations that are multiplying as he cries out to the Lord, clearly outnumbered. And perhaps what is particularly galling to David is not what the people are doing, but what they are saying. He says, there are many who say, many saying of my soul, there is no no salvation for him in God. That is, either God cannot, or perhaps even that God will not save David. Absalom's rebellion, you may recall, against his father came after a very long campaign to undermine his credibility. Absalom was suggesting that David was aloof from the cares and concerns of his people, that he no longer concerned about uh, executing justice or maintaining the rights of the innocent. You may recall that Shimei, after David took flight and was leaving Jerusalem, he took that as an opportunity to curse David for all of the evils that befell the house of Saul. And no doubt many others during this time of Absalom's rebellion wrote David off as a has-been, as one who had lost God's favor. And so they were saying, he's, 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 gone. he's a goner. His reign is done. No longer will God save him. No longer does God favor him. And that is what is particularly galling to David as he's surrounded by his foes. Well, in stark contrast to his detractors, he turns to the Lord in verse 3, and he describes all of the things that the Lord is for him. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Now, a shield, of course, provides protection. And boys and girls, in the ancient ancient world, if you went to war, you would be given a shield that you could hold in front of you to protect you from arrows or from uh, the assault of the enemies. But that shield was only good in the position where you put the shield. That is, it didn't protect you from behind or from the side. But you'll notice that the type of shield that the Lord is for David is one that doesn't protect just from one angle. But he says, you are a shield all about me. 360 degrees are covered, and, and, and David can, uh, can bask in the, in the protection of that shield. He also says, you are my glory. Now, kings in the ancient world were very concerned about their outward splendor and glory, and they would dress accordingly. They would wear a crown upon their head that was made of gold with with, uh, precious jewels that would shine when the sun hit it. They would wear robes that were in vibrant colors. They would surround themselves with an entourage. All of these things to to, to suggest outward splendor and glory. 
And yet when David had to flee from his son Absalom, he had to lay all of those things aside. He dressed uh, no different than a common man as he fled uh, his throne in Jerusalem. And yet here he confesses that he doesn't need those things. He doesn't need the outward pomp and circumstance of being a king for the Lord himself is his glory. The Lord's abiding presence uh, hovering over him is enough glory that David needs. And finally, he says, you are the lifter of my head. Now here, that speaks of exaltation, of being brought back or restored to the place of your former glory. You may recall Joseph in the book of Genesis when he interprets the dream of the, uh, of the cupbearer. And he says, you, your head will be lifted up and you will be restored to your former position. Well, so it is here, David, although he is no longer on the throne, he trusts that the Lord will restore him to his former glory. He will lift his head up again as he exalts David from his humiliation. And that will take place because David is confident that the Lord will hear him from his holy hill. Now here again, it's a reference to Mount Zion where the, uh, where the presence of God, where God made his name known to which the Israelites would direct their prayers and to which they would go to enter into his presence. But you may recall from the story in 2 Samuel chapter 15, as David was making his way to flee Jerusalem, the priests, Abiathar and Zadok, came bearing the Ark of the Covenant. And they, they were suggesting that David, that they take the, covenant with, the Ark of the Covenant with David. And yet, what does he say? He says, put it back in its place. Bring the Ark back. He says, if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. He didn't have the, Lord, the visible presence of the Lord go with him because he knew he was so confident that God would restore him and that the Lord would hear him no matter where he went. Just like Jonah crying out from the belly of the fish, he was confident that God heard him even in Jerusalem He knew that God could hear, and so it is with David. Wherever he goes, he knows that the Lord will hear him from his holy hill. And with that confidence in mind, abiding under his protection, knowing that he is his glory, that he is the one who will restore him, David spoke, in verse 5 says, I lay down and slept and woke again. Now imagine trying to get a good night's sleep, when somebody is hunting your life, when your son has launched a rebellion and the only way to end that rebellion is to have King David put to death. And that's precisely what Absalom's advisor, Ahithophel, advised the very night that David fled. He says, let me take some men, I'm going to hunt them down, and I'm going to kill David and put a swift into it because he will be weary and he will be discouraged. Well, thank God that Ahithophel's advice was thwarted and David was able to survive that night and, as he testifies, get a good night's sleep. But David credits his peaceful sleep not to his bodyguards, which surrounded him, not to his military strategy, but ultimately to the Lord who sustained him. Verse 7, now David calls upon the Lord to act in response to his enemies who are rising up against him. He now calls upon the Lord to arise 
and to act. The prayer that he says, or he's, uh, the, the, the thing that he describes, the actions of the Lord may sound to our modern ears a bit barbaric. Breaking the teeth, striking them on the cheek, and perhaps hard to reconcile with the teaching of our Lord. To turn the other cheek, how can we as New Covenant believers pray this, this psalm as it describes the Lord giving a, 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 Mike, a Mike Tyson punch to the jaw of our enemies. Well, while we as New Covenant believers should never take vengeance into our own hands, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, we should never pray personally against our personal enemies by name. We are nevertheless reminded of the fact that we have enemies in this world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that, then, and that although we don't take personal vengeance or we don't take vengeance in, into our hands, it nevertheless is claimed by the Lord himself who will dash all his and our enemies as, uh, with a rod of iron as a potter's vessel. And you'll notice that this, the, 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 the place in which the Lord strikes them, that is, in the mouth, is particularly fitting in light of how they are assaulting David. Again, this is a war of words. They're saying of David, there's no hope for him. And so what does God do? He stops their mouths. Well, the verbal attacks continue into the next psalm, as we see in Psalm 4, David crying out, uh, complaining against his enemies, saying, how long will you, my, shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? There again, it's a war of words. They're lying about David. They're spreading rumors. They're uh, spreading false accusations. But David knows how to respond to those. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord's actions of distinguishing between those who belong to him and those who do not is really all that God cares about. Or sorry, that David cares about. At the end of the day, it's, it's God's opinion about him and his standing before God that is most important. And that's why I think it's so crucial that we notice the way in which he describes God in verse 1 of Psalm 4. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. God of my righteousness. And at this point, we might pause and wonder, well, David, what kind of righteousness are you talking about? Are you talking about the righteousness which God requires of you? Are you talking about your own personal righteousness? Or are you talking about another type of righteousness? one that has been given to you, imputed to you, apart from the works of the law. Well, I think when we turn to the New Testament and see how the Apostle Paul reads the Psalms, I think we have pretty good confidence to see David speaking about not the righteousness which God requires of him, but the righteousness which is given to him by faith alone. As Paul says in Romans chapter 4, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And so this action of God setting apart the godly for himself, part of that setting them apart is declaring them righteous by faith alone. And so 
confident of his standing before God, knowing that righteousness has been imputed to him by faith, and knowing that he has been set apart by God, David is confident that the Lord hears when he calls. He has an ever-ready ear to hear. Now about you, but I find it very frustrating when you call someone who you know that they're able to answer the phone, and yet you get a voicemail. And so you call again, and, and you get another voicemail, and you call again, and you get another voicemail, and then you throw up your hands in desperation. That doesn't happen with God. You never get his voicemail. You always have an ever-ready ear to hear. And so David says, you will hear me when I call out. And notice already, he's already called out in verse 1. Answer me when I call. That is, in answering, or in calling, I want you to answer right away before even the first ring. And David has that confidence. And so resting in the righteousness imputed to him by faith alone, and secure of his standing before God, knowing that he will answer when he calls, David then offers some Advice, And I think this is helpful advice for us when we are faced with false accusations, when we are confronted with uh, the, 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 the world uh, uh, fighting us because we call upon the name of Christ. Notice what he says there in verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Now you might wonder at this point, is that even possible? Is it possible to be angry and yet not sin? Well, yes, it is possible. And we know that because the Lord himself gets angry. He has righteous indignation against all sin, and yet never does he fall into sin. Yes, it is possible to be angry and not sin, but it isn't easy. You see, when confronted with false accusations or unjust treatment, it's so easy for our egos to get in the way. How dare they say that about me? Don't they know who I am? And we, get our, we, we inflate ourselves. We become, we become uh, puffed up with our own self-righteousness. But that is not the way we should respond. Sin should anger us. It should grieve us. But it should never lead us to sin. And I think a perfect example of that is the example that our Lord set for us when he was confronted with, with false accusations, when he was confronted with unjust treatment, as Peter describes in 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's ultimately what David is telling us to do, and perhaps no better verse then this would be a good verse to ponder in your own hearts when your head hits the pillow. You've had a rough day. If you've been beaten up in the world, if you've been falsely accused or had unjust treatment, just recite 1 Peter 2, 22. And ponder that in your hearts. And you can be angry, but you will not sin. And as Paul tells us in our reading of the law today, The sun will not go down on our anger. Why? Because we give it over to God. We entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. We give give our vengeance over to him who claims vengeance as his own, and he will repay. And thus we give no opportunity for the devil to take that anger and turn it into something bad. 
But David also encourages us to offer right sacrifices and put our trust in the Lord. And we might wonder, well, what are the right sacrifices? Are these the ones that are done in accordance with the law, where you offer up the appropriate animals according to the specific requirements? I think David is talking about something even greater. As he tells us in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit, a broken heart for our sin, as we mourn over the sins we've done, as we confess those in humility, those are the sacrifices that God is pleased to accept. As well as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, as we offer up ourselves to him in service to our neighbor. In response to those who are seeking some good in this world, David directs us to the shining countenance of our covenant God as he recalls the words of the the high priestly blessing in Numbers chapter 4, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the good that we should seek in this world. As David in verse 6 says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And as God's shining countenance shines upon us as his people, as he places his name upon us as his covenant people, we can be full of joy. So much joy that the world can't even comprehend. As as David says in verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. That is, you think of all of the earthly pleasures, all of the treasures of this world, all of the material prosperity that you can have, that, and the happiness that that might provide pales in comparison to the joy that we as God's people have when, he, when his face shines upon us, even in the midst of our sorrows and trials. And so at the end of another long day, David lays his head on the pillow, and he does so in peace. He says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone will make me dwell in safety. We see here that David takes his own advice, that he's angry, but he doesn't sin. He ponders in his own heart on his bed, and he gets peaceful and joyful sleep because the Lord protects him. Well, as our head hits the pillow tonight, after having done battle with the world the flesh, and the devil. What will give you peace of conscience and joy in the inner man? I don't know about you, but I know for myself, it's not going to be that I did my best today. I'm not going to find comfort in the good things that I did. No, I'm going to find comfort in the God of my righteousness. I'm going to find comfort in not the righteousness which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to find joy in the fact that God has set me apart as his people and that he, his countenance shines upon me. Those are the things that grant to us peace and joy even in the midst of our trials. And all of those things are possible because of what Christ did for us. Again, remember, David suffered many things, but all of his sufferings are merely a type and shadow of the sufferings that Christ underwent for us. He humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him. And as we follow his path of suffering, as we take up our cross and follow after him, we know that we have the joy set before us, because Christ has already entered there in the heavens.
Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you were pleased in the fullness of time to be born of woman, to be born of the law, to be born as a son of David, so that you might live a life of righteousness and suffering on our behalf. We thank you for the peace of conscience and joy of the Holy Spirit that we experience even now in this world, which is nothing more than a veil of tears. And yet, Lord, we pray that as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that we would fear no evil, for you comfort us and you lead and guide us into the paths everlasting. And we pray that you would continue to be with us even this week as we go about our daily lives. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.